Welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is the place to connect to who you truly are. We're bringing PhDs, experts, and leaders to help you elevate your mindset in your work life and in your love life so that you can see things differently and truly love your world. I'm Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, author, and TEDx speechwriter and booker, and I'm excited to bring you in to this week's episode. U-Turn friends, it's Ash here, and I'm really excited to have a, what I would say, a new friend on the show. I was on his show, um, and if you haven't checked out his podcast, it's called Mental Illness Happy Hour, and he's been at it since 2011. His name is Paul Gilmartin, and he is just an incredibly special individual who are who's helping people all over the world when it comes to their mental illness, their well-being. He was chosen as a podcast to follow by the New York Times, The Atlantic, Esquire, Slate, the whole deal and the editorial staff at Apple. So what more can we say? And he was a former host of TBS's Dinner and a Movie um, from 1995 to 2011. And he just happens to be a very funny human being, which is so healing when it comes to mental health and wellness topics. Um, And so I want to talk to Paul today about his career path and what wisdom we can all take from him making pivots in his career that are kind of significant, you know, like um, in the same way I moved from counterterrorism to career coaching, not an obvious career move. Paul has had many career changes as well. So I want to talk to him about that and give you some nuggets of wisdom in your career changes. So Paul, thank you so much for being here with me. I can't handle this pressure. And oh it's God. way too much of a buildup. And uh, it was great talking to you. You know, I I feel like that all the time when people read my bio. I'm like, who the fuck is that? You know? (laughs) The fraud complex. Yeah. I'm like, wow. You know what I've learned, though, about bios, Paul? I feel like the shorter the bio, the more powerful the individual. That's becoming my new story. It's like, this is Albert Einstein. He invented E equals MC squared. Next. You know? Yeah. Um, Okay. So... I don't even know where to begin because you have such a cool different journey. Can we start off by just talking about your podcast? Like where were you in life when you started it? Because 2011 was not the podcast boom. I'm so envious that you started a show in 2011. I wish I started way back then. Um, tell me a little bit about what was going on for you. That's funny. I thought I was late to the game and I and I had people encouraging me to start a podcast. I think among the stand-up community, podcasts kind of took off sooner than the rest of the world. And while my podcast is not a comedy podcast, many friends of mine had started years earlier. A really good friend of mine, Jimmy Pardo, had started his podcast, Never Not Funny, in 06. Mm. And here's what a visionary I am. I said to him, why would you start a podcast, a comedy podcast, when Ricky Gervais already has one? That's how little I understood about the future of podcasting. Um, I knew I didn't want to do a a comedy podcast because my friend Jimmy's podcast was so good and is so good. I thought I don't want to compete with that. And I didn't feel the, the urge. It didn't feel like it would be a labor of love. It felt like it would be, I don't know. And I was still doing dinner and a movie at the time. It was the last year of it, but I didn't know it at the time. And uh, I had decided because I changed my diet, I had decided in 2010, 
I'm going to go off my meds. I don't need them anymore. My psychiatrist was like, please don't. I was like, you know, I know what I'm doing. I was pre-med. I know what I'm doing. Idiot. So I went off them and I'd gone off them before, like a lot of people do. And uh, normally within a month, I would find out, oh, this is a shit show. I need them. I'm super depressed. I'm anxious. Uh, I didn't feel that. Mm. And about five months later, <clears throat> it came back, but I didn't recognize it. Mm. And I think it was especially tough because it was between Thanksgiving and Christmas, which... Uh, prime you know, time for mental illness. Prime time. Happy hours. Yes. So when it came back, it fooled me. And I thought my life really, uh, I can't enjoy anything. I don't know how I didn't recognize it as the depression coming back, but I was crying a lot. And then... There was a moment where I was in a support group meeting. This guy was sharing about a suicide attempt. And he was describing, like, cutting his his neck vein open oh, in a van. And it's shooting all over the place. And he looks to the, you know, to the heavens and says, God, I'm ready. Please take me. And obviously, he survived. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm jealous. Mm. And that's when I went oh wow <laughs> something is wrong and that's when it occurred to me oh this is the depression this isn't reality and that's when i came up with the idea for the podcast because i thought i've been in therapy forever i'm under the care of a psychiatrist i believe that mental illness depression etc is real and I've been fooled by it. And I thought a podcasting medium would be a good place. I was also inspired by Mark Maron's podcast, especially an interview he did with a guy named Todd Hansen, where they talked about uh, Todd's suicide attempt. Mm. And, I, and I just thought um, podcasting would be a perfect platform for this because you, it's not going to be tidy little sound bites. It's not going to be a you know magazine article where they wrap it all up in five minutes and it, it's complicated. And, um, and and I didn't think anybody would listen. I wasn't really sure, but I thought it's something that might help people and I might enjoy doing. And so that's kind of how it started. And I never imagined that I would segue to that being my full-time job, which I think was ultimately a good thing because I didn't put the pressure on myself for it to be something. And I was just myself and I allowed it to evolve. And I also knew that humor was a really important part of um, staying mentally healthy, not to avoid the vulnerability, but in addition to it. So how's mm -hmm. that for a long ass answer? No, I, I love a long ass answer. So that's perfect. I, um, I, I took some time to research uh, the suicide rates uh, in the wake of COVID. And I know that they skyrocketed. I'm seeing numbers that indicate that the 2020 increase was, you know, obviously unprecedented, um, with a 30% increase in the rate of drug-induced deaths, 27% um, increase in the rate of alcohol-induced deaths. Um, and I also know, and, and you can confirm this for me, that uh, suicide, the suicide rate is even more so impacted with men, correct? Like men are more likely in suicide. I believe so. I yes. believe so. So I can't really imagine feeling that way. And what I found, you know, in my case, I, as having had a sister who was mentally not well, 
Um, and I wouldn't say she took her own life by suicide, but using drugs when she was so fragile is what took her life. Um, it's, it's hard to watch someone have a mental illness, let alone it be yourself. It can be incredibly overwhelming. Um, if you've ever, you know, anyone who's listening, if you've ever been in a bad mood, it's kind of hard to get out. You know, I'm not a moody person. That's not my thing. I have other things for sure, Paul, but that's not my little thing I pull off the shelf. Um, but when I do have a mood, it's pretty tough to just be like, delete, control, alt, delete. So, um, I imagine that this podcast, you know, starting it so early was just a good space for you to talk to experts, take in information. I'm actually creating a course on podcasting for the first time. I haven't created any content in years other than my book, um, because I just feel like it's been such a healing modality for me um, to be able to invite people on. It's so empowering. And friends of mine, as I was starting my podcast said, you are going to be so surprised by how empowering it, it feels. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, wow, they are, they are right. They are right. And the other thing I wanted to add about the suicide rate is among veterans Mm. and among trans. Yeah. It is off the fucking charts. Yeah, it's heartbreaking, heartbreaking. And, you know, I remember when I was young, somebody once said, I don't believe in depression. I believe in suppression. Like, like when you're not being yourself, you get depressed. I think there's probably a very real chemical imbalance that's going to cause depression, whether people accept you or not. But I imagine that the um, tight laced approach the society has of who we should be and the messages that we receive is going to create a huge downfall in people who are already working on their stability. Um, who have you interviewed or what have you realized or what have you turned to anything that you've done that you think outside of medication? Because I know that sometimes that is just the best answer. I'm actually tapering off of my anti-anxiety meds that I've been on for three years right now. Um, yeah, like what what has really shifted things for you? And I know it's a forever journey, right? Like you, right. it's a, it's not a sprint. I know it's a marathon, but yeah. Um, tell me, tell us a little bit about what's moved things along for you. Getting sober. Um, one of the things that, you know, it's when somebody fills out a survey uh, for the podcast, half of the survey is interview and the other half is me reading surveys uh, that people fill out anonymously. And one of the things that I see a lot is somebody just just feeling overwhelmed by the struggles you know maybe a relationship's not working out there's no communication uh, they can't appreciate their life they're sad all the time they're depressed and then they'll mention you know and i'm drinking every night or i'm binging and purging and and one of the things i strongly believe is we have to deal with our addictions first and that doesn't mean that we should only deal with them then you know i believe we can be in therapy at the same time but Especially when you're putting uh, drugs into your body. I'm talking about drugs that, you know, like, you know, meth and alcohol and stuff like that. I'm not not talking about um, psych meds. I, I believe that that is has to be the first thing that really needs our focus. Uh, I don't believe that real progress in battling mental illness, overcoming trauma is possible while we are self-medicating. We have to unnumb ourselves 
to be able to understand what's going on. Um, it gets us to the starting line. You know, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily cure everything if somebody's battling a mental illness, but it gives us a, a, a fighting chance. I throw everything against the wall to see what sticks. Uh, meditation, obviously, my my support groups, uh, that's super huge. Um, being kind to myself, taking naps when I'm tired. Yeah. Um, being patient with the process, seeing a psychiatrist, making outreach phone calls. Um, did I mention exercise? Exercise. Yeah. Um, those are all things that that I have to I have to do on a daily basis, and sometimes it feels overwhelming, and that can make me a little depressed. Like, oh my god, I can't believe I got to do that for the rest of my life. So I break out the other tool, which is take it one day at a time. Mm-hmm. Be kind to myself. If I don't feel like meditating, that's okay. Um, mm-hmm. So, kind of the the things that are non-negotiable for me are taking my meds and attending my support group. I love that. And also trying to be, trying to be of service. Yeah. Um, you know, um, trying to live an honest life. That's so underrated. Isn't that so underrated to live an honest life? It's the quickest, like, like I, the amount of quick wins people might try to have at the expense of their self-esteem, like, don't steal the pen. I mean, that's kind of a bad example because usually they're free, but like, don't take the thing that seems like it's not a big deal for the business because deep down you're sending yourself a message that you're not showing up in in integrity. You're taking something that doesn't belong to you. I feel like there's so many little tiny things we could do every single day in the world that takes advantage of someone or is out of integrity and not just the things we do, but how we respond to things that are done to us. And we're just constantly sending ourselves a message of who do we think we are um, and how what are our standards. And there's been so many moments for me where I'm like, it feels right that I get this thing or this thing is handed to me because of this situation. But I don't just go and take it because I know in the back of my head, I'm like, I'm not going to like me after this. In fact, I Cheers. just bought, I was just telling you when we started recording, I bought a used car um, at the Audi dealership in North Miami. I've never bought a used car before. Um, and I, you know, I had a mobile mechanic come with me to some used car lots because somebody gave me that tip. They're like, bring a mobile mechanic. It's a hundred bucks. They'll look at the car and with like 95% certainty within 20 minutes, they'll be able to tell you, does it need something that's obvious to them? Um, and so I brought them with me to all these regular car lots but I didn't bring them with me to the Audi dealer because I told myself, like, I don't need to pay a mobile mechanic. This is the Audi dealer of North Miami. Sure enough, it has $2,000 of fixes. One of them is brakes that were not even safe to drive on. So my point being, it's like we live in a world where sometimes I think we feel like we need to fend for ourselves yeah. or we're, 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 we're tired of people scamming us and whatever it is. And we feel like we need to just grab what we deserve. But Living that honest life, it's so hard and it takes so much work and it's almost like a decision every single day. And I imagine that your group that you go to holds you accountable to that. I was just going to say that the two things, you know, you do a lot of self-reflective work, not a self-obsessive work, but self-reflective work where you write out your fears, you write out your resentments. And you begin begin to see the patterns of how you filter reality through your fears. And it 
keeps you from being the authentic, honest you. So the two things that I try to cultivate is keeping my integrity even when I'm afraid and having faith that living an honest life uh, is the right path. And then the universe uh, will give me what I need, not what I want. And you know, not that I won't experience struggle or problems or suffering, but uh, I I will be okay mm-hmm. uh, in in the end because I won't be making it worse by hating myself. Yeah, and isn't it crazy how many tiny little things um, can become huge parts of your mind share? It's like, I'm just going to do this tiny little thing. And then you're thinking about it when you're alone in bed at night. And it's like the smallest thing, but it makes you feel so bad. Um, And we can keep those moments in our memory for years. So the fact that you go to a group, it's not just probably about you sharing, but it keeps you accountable to being honest, especially when other people are being honest. Um, Let's say that somebody's listening right now and they want to get involved in some sort of group for their well-being, but maybe they don't have an addiction or at least not one that they're aware of at this time. And they just want that sense of community. Um, where would you recommend maybe they look or that they consider to start feeling uh, that? There are tons of 12-step uh, groups on any, you know, there are there are groups for people who don't have addictions, but were raised in uh, dysfunctional environments. And I think that probably applies to a lot of people. Um, CODA is yeah. the is the name of that one. And I hear great things about that. Uh, adult children of alcoholics or dysfunction uh, is another one kind of similar to CODA. Um, is CODA with a K? K-O-C- with a C. C-O-D-A. Okay. Yeah. So you can Google that. Um, I think those are great ones. Uh, NAMI, N-A-M-I, a National Alliance um, for a Mental Illness is another one. NAMI.org. Uh, all kinds of, uh, especially if you have a loved one who's suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, helpguide.org is a great resource to find uh, um, all different kinds of resources. Um, I think those are the 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 big one. Uh, you might try in the rooms can't remember if it's .com or .org. We'll put but, it all in the show notes. We'll make sure. Yeah, that's a, a, a 12-step kind of directory for meetings for any type of uh, 12-step subject. Uh, there's, you know, Under Earners Anonymous. There's um, Debtors Anonymous. Uh, there's there's Gamblers Anonymous, Marijuana Anonymous. So, there, yeah, there's every every kind you know, and, uh, what you're sharing also reminds me to ask you, sorry, I interrupt you. I just got excited. Go, okay. please. Okay. Well, I was going to say there's a lot of addictions that people maybe know somewhere inside of them they have, but they don't want to go to the group because that feels like a really big step. Yes. Um, it's like, damn, I'm sh- you know, I think I might have a weed problem, but I don't want to go admit myself to a 12 step yet. Is there some sort of purgatory step that you recommend in the in-between? Like, you know, I met a guy in New York where he, you know, and I think a lot of people have this. He's like, I smoke weed to sleep sometimes. And he would, you know, I, my interpretation, the story I had was, oh, he probably smokes a joint on his balcony before bed, like a few nights a week, just sleeps better because of it. Whether there's science for that or not, I don't understand the science yet, but um, 
What I didn't realize was he's smoking three joints every single night and he really can't come home without those joints and he can't function the way he wants to without them. So it's like he really didn't want to face that this could be the A word, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So what what would be the, the middle ground, you would say, um, to help people get started? I would say, just say uh, to yourself, I'm just going to check out six meetings. Mm-hmm. And just go to six meetings and say, you know, I'm just going to see if any anything clicks. Um, you know, maybe attend one on Zoom and you know, don't even share, don't even have your video on. But I would really recommend that you actually, excuse me, raise your hand and say, I don't know if this is for me. I just wanted to introduce myself <clears throat> and kind of let you know what's going on for me. Because you might experience a conversation afterwards with somebody who's like, I was exactly where you were. Right. And nobody, nobody can tell us whether or not we are an addict or whether or not we belong in that program. They, you know, they can say, well, you, you know, check off a lot of the boxes for this, but <clears throat> for it to take hold, we ultimately have to decide uh, whether or not that's the the thing that we qualify for or or that we want to keep keep going to but i don't know anybody that's excited to roll in yeah to, oh, what's going on with my voice you just need a little coffee i don't know anybody who's excited to roll into uh a, a support group so that's very very normal yeah i feel like i'm the only one that probably would because i love i mean i don't love um, having issues that I'm like feeling shame around, but I do love community and I found that it's existence to be crucial. I think the amount that we need friends, groups, places to regulate ourselves so that we don't bring our issues unintegrated in our brains to our partner, to our family. It's like, there's so much we could do through relationships to regulate and process life. Yes. And, and, uh, I would also add, uh, therapist, um, run, uh, groups. Yeah. Love group that. therapy. I, I hear a lot of people, uh, who get a ton out of it because there's some accountability there. Um, and you get that feedback from yeah. people who can call you on your bullshit, can support you, can be a shoulder to cry. And obviously the quality of each one, depends on the therapist and the people in it mm-hmm. but i just throw a bunch of shit against the wall and see what sticks yeah you know, there's a saying in recovery if nothing changes nothing changes i love that saying because it's so real um okay so even just kind of deviating from this i know in your studies in your career you went from pre-med to theater like what a move, Paul. <laughs> I love that for you. I I mean, I studied national security and I literally don't even know what's going on in the news right now because I, I think I'm permanently hungover from working in national security. I bet. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how that impacted you and a little more also about your career in stand-up? You know, we were talking about authenticity and I had kind of an epiphany I was in my junior year of college and I was getting ready to take the MCATs, uh, which is the test that will help you get into medical school, the thing they judge you on. And 
there was a stand-up competition. And my roommate knew that I secretly really wanted to try stand-up. And, and he talked me into entering it. And it was months away. So I decided I'm going to take an acting class to just overcome my fear of doing that. And I fell in love with acting. And it just, it felt like I wasn't even at school anymore. It just felt like getting into a warm jacuzzi. That's the way I also felt when I woodworked for the first time. But uh, I kind of had this epiphany a, a couple of months into taking this acting class. I imagined myself 15 years down the road and I thought, if all of a sudden I discover I have a terminal illness at, at 35 and I never gave this a shot, what would I feel like? And I and I just pictured the feeling that ah, I missed out mm. on something that my soul really wanted to do. And I also imagined there was a part of me that was trying to fill something, mm. something that, that wasn't there in childhood or who knows what. But I decided to change my major to theater. And for all the shortcomings and flaws and damage damage that you know i may have felt from my parents they were they were good people doing the best they could and i'm so grateful that one of the things they said was do something that you love because chances are you'll do it well and the money will take care of itself and I know my dad was a little freaked out when I called home and told him I was changing my major to theater. But they had a friend who was in advertising and he was so miserable. And they said, do whatever you want except advertising. And, um, and it's funny, one of the first jobs I had when I moved to L.A. was marketing. But I needed I needed it. Um, but I, when I graduated from college, it was, um, you know, reality hit. How the hell am I going to make my living as a as an actor? And I wasn't having any success doing it. And I secretly really wanted to do stand up and I wanted to do improv. And so I went through the training program at Second City, which is kind of the mecca of improv. And I didn't get invited to be a paid performer and I was crushed and I was kind of faced with the well buddy you can have this in insurance day job that you had this was before I moved to LA I was still in Chicago or you can try stand up and my mom was very encouraging she you know was like well keep note cards and write your ideas down and and I started doing it and it was fortuitous that it was a time when there were a lot of comedy clubs and you didn't have to be great and after a year and a half of doing open mics, I was able to support myself doing that. And wow. I really felt like uh, I felt proud of myself. Yeah, it was a little scary because yeah. there's a lot of unknowns. But I look back on that and I was like, wow, that was really fucking ballsy. I feel like the universe kind of not only opened a door for me, but tapped me on the shoulder mm. and said, hey, let's go over. Let's go over here because I'm a fearful person mm. and that's still true today i have tools to help me battle it every day but i look back and go where did that come from mm. i believe it was some type of grace wow i'm just like 
something like, I remember when I started my career coaching business, I thought to myself, you know, if I could make $30,000 in my first year, I'd be so impressed and so proud. And I remember, I think I made 120K or something maybe wow. more than my job. Yeah. And, and I, I wasn't being anyone but me as I did it. It was like a service that the world needed. And so I think we all have different skills that we can earn a living offering, whether we want to monetize them and offer them or not. And not every artist is meant to make uh, a job out of their music, right? Like we're not all meant to sell the things that are hobbies or that we're into. But um, where, like, where did you kind of go with the comedy? And what was the biggest lesson you learned moving into that pivot point of like, oh, wow, I'm getting paid to do this. And it's, I'm pretty proud of it. Like, what is the biggest, um, I don't know, like shift you experienced or learning that you had in that era? That's interesting that you mentioned it because I was just going to share this, that I think the biggest lesson, and I think it was kind of a, while it had to do with my profession, ultimately, I think it was a spiritual um, light bulb going off in my head. I've been sober at that point for eight years. It was 2011, and it was towards the end of uh, my stand-up career, I really kind of retired from doing stand-up, not because I didn't like stand-up anymore, but, but because I was just hated traveling, you know, putting up with nightclub owners and, you know, badly organized shows and the hotel you, you were promised, it was, you know, shittier than they said it was going to be, et cetera, et cetera. And I was performing in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which had been a club that I used to sell out when I would perform there. And I hadn't really changed my act that much. And the audiences were, it wasn't really selling out anymore. And I hadn't been there in a couple of years. And I get there and I'm thinking the show is going to, it was just a single show. And I thought, well, this is going to be packed. Mm. It was like 15 people. And I was so depressed and I'm Mm -hmm. sitting backstage waiting to go on. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned in my support groups and et cetera, et cetera, is when I feel agitated or something, something that isn't the clinical depression Mm -hmm. is ask myself, what's going on? Am I filtering this through, you know, some fear of mine or some selfishness? And I realized These people paid to see me. Mm. I am being hired to entertain them. I am not being hired to please myself. And I went out there and I gave them the best show I could. And it was great. Um, And it it just reminded me that um, when I make it all about me, it's never enough. Mm. It's never enough. So I have to... Try to remember what is my purpose? What is the most important thing here? Mm-hmm. And and that was a great lesson mm. for me. Yeah, it was it was painful and it was humbling, but it I it lifted that situational depression in mm. that moment because it gave me something to focus on that was connective. Mm. And it affected my performance. Mm. Okay, so you know, I think that the trademark of a fulfilling career is movement because the truth is that as humans, we change so much 
So when I see somebody moving up, to me, it either means they ask no questions, they put in the work and they moved up, or it can mean that they're super fulfilled, they're super on fire with their gifts and they're flying up. But when I see people moving across the board, I get really curious because some people moving around and they're trying to figure it out. But a lot of people, when they're moving around, it, it's it, it's that they're self-expressed. I'm trying this, then I'm doing that. Um, even in my business, I don't even think I mentioned this when I saw you at your place, Paul, but I, um, for the first time I'm like offering, you know, I was telling you I'm doing a podcasting course, which is so new for me to even put content out there because when I wrote my book and talked about my traumatic experience of selling courses, I just took myself out of the arena for so long. And boy, what um, a story that is. Holy what? shit. Yeah. Chapter 10. But I'm also creating a new offer, which I haven't done, which is booking, helping people book, write, and deliver the best TED Talk they've ever done because I, I've had a really good success rate with booking them. And I just thought to myself, like, gosh, it feels so vulnerable to, to change. Um, but that's just the truth of the human experience. So what gave you the courage to say, okay, I'm done with stand up. Now I'm going to do podcasting because there's always that transition phase where it's like, you don't know if this thing is going to support you and your show is doing great. So I would love to just hear kind of what was that narrative in your mind and what can we share with people as a tool for them to navigate that? Listen to your soul. But I also think that we have to do the the work, whether it's a support group or therapy or a network of friends that we can be vulnerable with, finding out what our intent is. I think a lot of stand-ups, myself included, our first decades, maybe our entire career is we're doing it for ourselves completely. And we're not even thinking of what the audience is giving us. We're focused on their response to us. Mm. And being when when young stand-ups or podcasters ask me for advice, one of the first things I say to them is ask yourself why you're doing this. Are you doing it because you love the craft of it? Because you want to entertain people because you love it? Or are you doing it because you want to get rich or you want to be famous? Mm. Uh, because those are going to be two completely different paths and they're going to inform, I believe, the quality of what you're doing. So when the show was canceled, the uh, dinner and a movie, and I kind of lost my love for stand-up, I was feeling a passion for this podcast. And I was fortunate enough to be married at the time and have a wife who was making good money writing for TV. So I had that safety net. I don't know what I would have done if I was living alone because, you know, I made no money the first couple of years. I think, I think maybe one year from donations, I made Mm. $7,000. So I I was blessed in that I had that safety net and my then wife, um, I had printed out an email that somebody had written me that said I was going to take my life on Saturday night and I listened to your podcast and I mm-hmm. changed my mind. And I love that. My wife had printed something out and she went to retrieve it and she read this email and she said, keep doing the podcast. We don't worry about 
the money. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. I feel like the the universe, because my intent was good, um, and I believe that it, it was everything I'd experienced in my life was not a mistake. And so it was a feeling I had inside me that I felt very sure of it, that this was, whether it was going to be temporary or last for years, I felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. If I was still drinking, if I hadn't gotten help, I don't, I would have probably acted out of fear and I either wouldn't have done it or I would have done it in a manner that was not authentic. So it's kind of a complicated answer yeah. and it's probably not going to be true for everybody, but I think self-honesty is really, really important. There's yeah. nobody that we lie to as much as ourselves. Yeah, it's crazy how much we do it. And, you know, one form of lying to yourself, I think, is magical thinking, which a lot of people don't yes. realize they have. Yes. Me and my brother, my whole family, we have it. Actually, my mom was doing it the other day. So when I moved to Florida, I we I bought a house with my brother. He's the only reason I'm going to have financial security probably when I'm 90 because he keeps encouraging me to buy real estate with him and he's very diligent about it. So we bought this property in Florida, the front house we rented out to a doctor, the back house we renovated and I moved into it. And my mom was, I was trying to convince her to, to come to Florida for six months with my dad. Like you guys should just come, you know, our tenant in the main house is moving out soon. You can move in. It'd be nice to have you guys. And she's like, we don't need to live in the main house. We can be in the guest house. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a one bedroom little cottage. And my dad is the biggest energy of all time. Like there's no, he counts as seven people. So he's a very fun time. He's a very big time. So I was like, mom, what are you talking about? You can't live with dad in this like little cottage. Like he's going to, you're going to go wild and they have a dog. And so it was like this magical thinking of like, we don't have to think about the tenant moving out and timing when we move in. We, we can just be in the guest house, this open house that my whole family has been using in the back lot. And I just was like, that's my, that's my magical thinking and my lineage. Like my brother has a lot of magical thinking, my little brother, and he's one of the most talented businessmen I've ever met because that magical thinking, which borders delusion sometimes is incredibly innovative, imaginative and effective because then he goes off and he sometimes creates and, and executes on things that he would have never, you know, most people wouldn't do. But on the flip side, magical thinking is a form of delusion. You know, it's like, um, I do that. I used to do that a lot with my finances. Like, oh, I'm going to create a new YouTube channel and it's not going to cost 20K, even though the person told me it's going to be 20K. It's going to be 5K. You know, it's just, I got this. I got this. And so I want to call out anyone in magical thinking because sometimes when we think about lying to ourselves, it sounds like this abrasive thing we're doing to ourselves, but we're not thinking about all the little gentle, sneaky ways that we're actually not being honest with ourselves. So, um, Paul, what have I not asked you? Um, I also want to ask you, you know, obviously outside of the episode we recorded together, what some of your favorite guests have been on the podcast to direct people to some of those episodes on your show. I think it would be cool to um, help people just based on, you know, what episodes you love. Well, I think some of the best ofs that, that I've rerun over the last four years are a good place. Um, the original interview I did with Teresa Strasser is a great one. Uh, she returned as a guest. So there's two of them. And I recommend not that the second one wasn't great, but the first one 
I think is really special one. And I believe it was voted the um, best episode of the of the first year. Um, there's a really fascinating one. She was the first listener I ever recorded, and her name is Nadare Fanoyan. And she is uh, Iranian, and she had to flee Iran wow. in the 80s. Uh, when the Ayatollah took power because she and her husband, and she was pregnant, uh, were uh, Marxists, and they were arresting and executing Marxists. So that's where her story kind of begins, and it's uh, it's cinematic. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, maybe a two-hour conversation, but uh, really, really amazing. Um my God, there's, there's, there's so many, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm kind of at a, at a loss, but look at the, the, the best ofs. I think, I think those are a good, a good place to, to start. Paul, you're such a little gift. Thank you so much oh, for coming on the you. show. We have, I don't know if we've had an episode in a while with so many things I want to make sure we put in the show notes, like resources, which to me is the best. Cause it's like, what can we do in a 45 minute conversation um, we can open things up, right? But like putting resources to take it further, I feel like that's where the juice really can be. Um, yeah. So thank you again. Uh, where can everybody find you, learn from you? Where's your favorite place to send? I'm guessing it's the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast. Yeah, yeah. The uh, website, I mean, you can listen wherever you get your podcast. The website is mentalpod.com. Uh, and mentalpod is uh, also the social media handles uh, that you can follow us at. There's a Facebook page, facebook.com slash mentalpod. Um, yeah, those are, those are all the big places. Thank you again, my friend. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into the U-Turn podcast. And thank you again so much for our sponsors. We are here because of you and to our listeners. Thank you for checking out our sponsors. We always pick people and brands that we trust and we believe in. And just for listening to the show, writing your reviews on the Apple app, and just being willing to make your own U-Turns. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young.
So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.